Welcome to Boom, where we have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to the fourth episode of Boom, Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today on the episode, we talk with Jill McNitt-Gray from the University of Southern California on her research and her advice with starting collaborations in biomechanics. But first, a bit of boom. 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 In our episode with Joe McNitt-Gray, she talks about their research on the triple jump. So Hannah and I thought that we would share a little bit of sports biomechanics um, and how it relates to some Olympic events. And an article in The Conversation reports the triple jump as having the highest measured force on a human limb during intentional activity. And the triple jump is composed of the step, hop, and the jump. And it's been shown that between the step and the hop, athletes can exert a force on the ground that is 22 times their body weight. So this is about 1.7 tons of force just on one leg. And because of this, the bones of triple jump athletes are thicker and denser than the average person. They need to adapt to these forces. And there's also been computer simulations to study the arm swings of triple jumpers, which have been really interesting because previously the arm swings have been asymmetrical, so kind of how your arms move when you're running or walking. But recently in men's triple jump, a uh, symmetrical swing has become more popular, and so this is when both of the arms move together, and it's thought that this gives the athlete more time on the ground to generate power, but it hasn't become as popular in women's triple jump yet. Currently, the world record for triple jump was set at the 1968 Olympics at 8.9 meters. Whoa. How many feet is that for me, my U.S.? About 29 feet for, wow. for you English Thank folk you. out there. <laughs> Me no speak metric. (laughs) Well, 1968 was a long time ago, but we just had a recent Olympics in the winter. And one of my favorite events to watch is the figure skating. And there's a lot of cool biomechanics going on in figure skating. And actually, recently, there's been a lot of news about Tanya Harding um, because... That experience has been resurrected with the Tanya Harding movie, and in case you didn't know, she was the first American woman to land the triple axle at the 1991 U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she then went on to compete for the U.S. in the 1992 Winter Olympics in France, where she actually placed fourth. But um, the triple axle was a huge deal. An axle is just a forward edge jump where the skater lands backward on the opposite foot. And the cool biomechanics that go on there have been studied by a professor at Ithaca College in New York, Professor Deborah King, who has spent her career looking at the biomechanics of ice skating jumps, and she's tried to figure out some factors that are key to nailing this difficult triple axle. So by studying skaters' jump height, takeoff angle, takeoff velocity, and rotational velocity from lots of videos of different figure skaters, Professor King found that among all these different skaters, all skaters were increasing their number of revolutions or turns in the air by increasing their rotational velocity, not by increasing their jump height or time in the air. So you actually don't have to jump any higher or um, spend more time in the air to do a triple axle. You just have to spin faster. 
That's pretty interesting because I feel like if I was thinking about how to spin more times in the air, I I would think that I would need more time. Um, but it's interesting that they don't actually jump any higher. They just spin really fast. They just got to spin <laughs> real fast. And in, in fact, they actually do that by generating lots of angular momentum at takeoff and kind of pulling in their arms tightly to minimize that moment of inertia about the spin axis. And this um, actually makes them travel only 70% of the distance um, of their single axles because they're just spinning faster and like and not traveling as far. They're not generating that same horizontal or vertical velocity. So even though they're spinning three times around, they're, they're traveling less Less distance, distance than when they than just spin one time. Spinning one time, yeah. That's really interesting. So in case you ever want to try a triple axle, now you know the secret sauce. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. Um, now we're going to go into our interview with Jill McNitt-Gray. Today we're talking with Jill McNitt-Gray, the director of the Biomechanics Research Laboratory and professor at the University of Southern California. Thanks for talking with us, Jill. What did your lab study at the University of Southern California? So in my lab, we study the control dynamics of human movement, um, often during physically demanding activities where there's large forces that the individual needs to create or control to do whatever it is that they want to do. And we use both experimental work um, in the lab and in the field, as well as um, multi-link dynamic models to ask those kind of questions that we find difficult to answer experimentally. Okay, and do you, is it usually healthy people that you study? Yeah, so, so a lot of what we're, we're trying to focus on is how to have an effective interaction with the environment. And so whether this is like a foot-first landing and say a takeoff of a long jump um, or triple jump, perhaps it's a landing of a volleyball block or it's just okay. everyday locomotion, um, to be effective doing what you want to do, it really requires this effective interaction with the ground to generate the forces you need to move. And uh, we've done this in whole body movement in different sports applications, but also have done this kind of work with individuals, say with spinal cord injury, who are interfacing with this manual wheelchair and trying to generate those reaction forces at the hand rim. Both of these yeah. scenarios require understanding how they prepare for that contact, interact with the ground or the hand rim during contact, and then also pay attention to what happens from an energetics or repetitive loading point of view so they can do what they need to do, but also not wear out the system in the process. Right. So do you do any different system designs to find the most effective way? Yeah. So we're always looking to figure out how to improve performance and mitigate the risk of injury, right? So it's always mm-hmm. this balancing act. It forces your friend, right? So it causes your motion, but yet forces it too high and experienced um, repetitively might break down tissues, um, which might end up with negative consequences. So you kind of get it just right. And so part of it is understanding that you're going to have this interaction with the ground or the hand rim, but there's more than one way to get the job done. And we see this often, even with our elite athletes, there might be one or two strategic ways to get the reaction forces they need to do the task that they want to do. For example, we did some work years ago with USA National Diving Team. And what's really nice about looking at dives is that they do one of everything. They translate forward, rotate forward. They translate forward, rotate backwards. 
they translate backwards, rotate backwards, and they also translate backwards and rotate forward. So you've got these a very nice set of experiments. But one of the things we learned is is that if they want to jump high and rotate, they're going to have to redirect that reaction force in such a way that they get the translation and the rotation on each of these dives. Right. And if you were looking to see how they accomplish it, these are like our top national divers, we may find there's one or two ways to get that done. And um, so there may not be just one solution, right? Now, for one provides more consistent performance or allows you to do more rotations, those are things still under exploration. But oftentimes we're not really sure what they're optimizing and there may be more than one thing that's being optimized. Right. So we try to first appreciate what it is that they're doing that's working for them and then figure out how we might be able to get more of what they might need, especially if they're trying to do more difficult maneuvers. Right. How difficult is it to try to get them to change how they're performing? Well, part of it is 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 um, they may not want to change. They may just want to be more consistent in what they do. And so the first step mm-hmm. is just using biomechanics to clarify what are you really trying to do in this half second here, ten right. meters above the water, and um, and appreciate what all you have to get accomplished there, so you have a good chance of success. So if we understand what they're doing and they understand why if they need to be doing the things they're doing. Um, oftentimes their nervous system can figure out a lot of things better than we can scientists, mm-hmm. right? So we're listening to their solution space to better understand there may be a reason why they're doing it that way and not another way. And we found this before. And I remember one day we were down at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista and, you know, the athlete was trying to rotate their lower limb exactly like the coach wanted them to do to push. And I was working with one of my students who was a physical therapist and getting a PhD in biomechanics. He said, hold on a second, let me check something. And sure enough, what he found out is that if the athlete were to do exactly what the coach wanted her to do, she mm-hmm. would, she didn't have the stability to do what they were asking. And oh, wow. Sometimes the nervous system's telling you something and you have to stop and listen and see what's presented and then better understand that that might be a technique that that person can do to help their performance. But before we go down that path, you might want to prepare the body to handle that kind of load so that she is capable of maintaining that position so she can generate the force to do the task. And um, this is the part where the athletes are teaching us sometimes more than we're teaching them. And that's really a nice exchange because everyone participating is learning something. And uh, yeah. we'll all head in the right direction. So it makes it really fun and rewarding. Yeah, definitely. That must be fun being able to interact with the athletes like that. So I know that recently you were traveling on sabbatical, and I was wondering what research you were working on during that trip and where you were traveling to. So we're lucky here in Southern California that we have an Olympic Training Center, uh, about Pradera South in down near San Diego in Chula Vista. And so um, the sabbatical gives you a little bit of time, release for teaching, which opens up your schedule to do more of the field work where we can go on location, where the athletes are training, set up the technology to provide what kind of measurements we need to help them improve performance. And so this year we've been down to the training center uh, three times already, oh, wow. um, which has been great. Yeah, and so sometimes we're working with the athletes that are in residence there. They, they live down there and train. Sometimes there may be camps that the USA Track and Field might host for some of our top tier athletes where they can come down and, you know, utilize the technology that's available to help them improve their performance. 
So we've been able to get down there a couple times. It's just been great. And then also monitor what they were actually doing performance at internationals in Albuquerque this year. So um, it just gives you a little more freedom to do more follow-up and explore more areas. Uh, and especially in this case, it's been help- helpful to be able to follow more athletes and um, provide services for them. So yeah. a little extra time is really helpful. Right. Are the athletes happy to work with you? Yeah, and some of them have never participated in anything like this either. And so uh, it's helpful for them to understand how biomechanics and technology can help them improve performance. And uh, we're lucky to have people like maybe the first step of the season and then come back a couple months later and see how they're improving. And we're working to put this information down so we can track better what's happening. So, you know, biomechanics can help you in that day understand what's going on. But if over time we we um, look at what's happening with training, the athlete gets a better idea and their coaches get a better idea of how they're improving, where they're improving. Mm -hmm. Um, So they get an idea of what they're doing daily in practice is paying off in terms of, you know, where they want to head in terms of their performance objectives. Right. And you said that um, you go down there and kind of set up the technology. And I was wondering what kind of technology you set up. And I, I think you mentioned swimming too. So I'm kind of interested as to what, technology used yeah. for that yeah so um the swimming we've done with some of our swimmers at usc which has been uh really fun because they have very specific questions as it relates to their performance so we haven't done much lately with them although we're going to begin a couple projects along those lines i had a couple of very enthusiastic swimmers in my class this year and they came up with some really good questions that we hope to pursue this yeah summer. but um oftentimes even just uh, figuring out how to get uh, a view of the swim strokes underwater. And so um, we have a little uh, cart that runs along the side of the pool that you can kind of keep the camera to be even with the swimmer as they progress. Mm-hmm. And so by getting underwater video, you can get an idea what the techniques might be. Some of the other things we're, we do at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista is uh, we're fortunate to have a place where you can line up 14 different force plates in a row. And oh, wow. um, so they're basically blanks out there, right? So um, this last time we have either three or four plates and we can strategically locate them. So say if you had a triple jumper, you could get the first base takeoff, the landing between the hop and step, and the landing between the step and jump. Mm-hmm. So if you get an idea of really how they're using that momentum in the run-up to translate down the, the path and with it you know the higher they go they, that means higher velocity at contact which they then has to convert again to get height again in the subsequent phase so it becomes a very interesting momentum regulation problem to really maximize the jump distance and by having the plate we can again look at the quality of that interaction to see if we're getting what they need for the next phase and it works great. If it rains, you kind of have to be flexible and figure out. Um, yeah. <laughs> that just happened recently, so we ended up having the video feedback day before we actually got able to collect the data. But um, it's really great to have that in the training environment so it's realistic. Are athletes' dynamics significantly different when you're at that high of a level? As far as the elite athletes? Yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing what triple jumpers have to do, to be honest, because 
you know, they're going to take off, and so they've got some vertical velocity to help them get some time in the air, but now they're going to have some vertical velocity they have to deal with and turn around and jump again kind of thing. And so really preparing for that interaction so they can gather themselves and effectively handle the load. I mean, because the landing shear was one leg or, like, can be over 15 times body weight. Oh, wow. if you do not have the capabilities to control that kind of load coming back at you, it's going to be very difficult for you to um, not cave in, basically, somewhere, yeah, right? So yeah. you have to resist that and still jump again. So not only do you have to have the momentum coming in, but you are also in the business of trying to generate momentum going out. And so uh, you need to really time and interact with the, the ground effectively that you're getting what you need with every contact with the ground, right? Because, right. you know, anytime you contact the ground, it's an opportunity, right, to speed up or slow down or maintain your speed. And um, you want to make the most of it, you know, in the course of this particular event. It's really beautiful when you watch someone effectively do this. It looks like they just fly and float over the ground. It's quite amazing. Yeah, that um, is amazing. Yeah. And recently your lab at... USC received a grant that's a collaboration with other biomechanics labs, including University of Oregon and um, University of Colorado and Stanford University for a project uh, called the Overuse Injuries or Injury Prevention, the Integration of Biomechanics-Based Informatics for Prevention of Stress Fractures. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this project on overuse injuries. Yeah, so uh, we're really... Um, interested in seeing if we can help coaches figure out um, how to prevent stress fractures, which is very common, especially when you want to transition out of a high school environment and move into a college environment. And we're very fortunate that the the Pac-12 conference um, has used some of the resources from their their conference football game to support research in the area of health and well-being uh, with a focus on their student-athletes. And as a biomechanist from four different universities, we're really interested in how we might be able to use wearable technology um, like IMU sensors uh, to see if we're able to monitor the interaction between the runner and the ground during running, right, during the course of the season, and see if this kind of information is sufficient to really identify runners who might be at the highest risk of developing stress fracture. And... We're at a stage where this technology is emerging, but we need to see if it's going to be sufficient for detecting these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so we've been very fortunate to work with the local coaches and the athletes are very excited about participating and seeing if this can help them, you know, make better decisions in terms of training, training dose, preventing injuries, getting an idea how well individual athletes may recover after certain kind of runs and things like that, all of which should help try to get the balance between repetitive loading and positive responses, both on the physiological side and the biomechanics side. Right. And so when you're uh, using IMU sensors to capture this, how many sensors do you typically need? And um, do you think that these sensors, I guess you'll have to determine if they will be able to give you uh, useful data? Right. And that's the challenge, right? And so we're at a stage right now where we're exploring their use and the configuration and where to put it and what each of the sensors will tell us about the different aspects of the interaction, right? So 
if you have something around your waist, you're going to get more of a whole body effect. But if you have something around the ankles, you're going to get something more local. And so by uh, this is the fun part is actually working with people from uh, each of our four institutions. And also uh, we're working with Stephen Kane at University of Michigan, who's on our advisory board. And it's really great fun. We all met up in Oregon actually recently to go through some of the methods that we've been using and really get into the nitty-gritty about, you know, how are we actually going to process this? How are we going to validate that what we're measuring is what we think we're going to measure? How is this actually relevant to the quality of the interaction? And how might this eventually be related to, you know, prospectively identifying stress fracture? And it's, it's really cool because every all the labs have different experiences, have different methods. Everyone's sharing. Um, some people are are working on how to communicate the results and connect this data to what the what the people in sports medicine might be interested in. Others are into the MATLAB code to try to figure out how you get the synchronizations right. And um, also ultimately is you know getting the procedure so it can be easily implemented really at any college in the country. Because the idea here is if we can get it to work at four institutions, um, we get a lot of, uh, with the existing technology that might exist at each, each center, then this, if we find that it works, then this might be really helpful across the country and something we can share across conferences. And uh, so it's a really exciting time to figure out how we all can work together and see if this kind of approach can help our student-athletes. Yeah, that is really exciting. Four labs seems like a lot of labs to be, or five labs, I guess, um, seems like a lot of labs to be collaborating with, and I was just wondering how that came about, um, how the five labs decided to come together for this project. Well, I think each of the, um, well, it first started with some discussion at a, a international sports, I forget exactly what it was called, but um up at Oregon, they hosted a conference to see how biomechanics can actually be improved performance and be applied in the sports arena. A lot mm-hmm. of things were covered, and one of the things that emerged is, well, you know, if we look at what some of the major issues are in the collegiate environment, stress fractures came about as one that might be something we could do at each of the four schools. And we also mm-hmm. recognize that each school may have different equipment. For example, we have overground running set up where we can run across force plates. Others may have force plates embedded in a treadmill, right? And others right. Um, may have a different setup, right? And so if you don't have exactly the same technology, you still have a way of figuring out, you know, what what you're actually measuring with your sensors, how is that related to ground reaction forces, which has been helpful in terms of understanding load exposure. Um, and can we connect those two, especially then if you didn't have any of this and you just had sensors and you were going for a run, would you be able to pick up enough information from just the wearable sensors without the force plate? And mm-hmm. so by combining all these things together and recognizing that different places have different resources, we really can give it a good workout to see if this would actually work. And so by getting some brave souls to bring their labs together and give this a go, I think uh, everyone's really enjoying the interaction, even though it might be a little daunting to begin with. Um, but we've had great communication. We talk every other week as a group. We talk through the good stuff, the bad stuff, and really try to work together to, to solve the, the challenges. 
and it's really exciting when it all comes together and uh, we're able to get data. And then the other part that's on the back end is really taking advantage of databases and data analytics where um, you're able to de-identify the data and put it in a database. So now instead of having maybe kind of four stress fractures at one institution, you're able to bring that data together using similar methods um, uh, into one location, and that may help us identify factors that we couldn't do if we were just doing it by ourselves. Right. So we have found it to be really ex exciting and fun, and we're all learning so much. Um, that it's been a really great experience, and I suppose you have to be up for this kind of thing, but I think it's, uh, we're really hoping that we see some of this activity occur in some of the other conferences across the country. And um, with Stephen Kane helping us from University of Michigan, we might see some of that there. We've already been talking to Ron Zernicke there in his group, and uh, so we're hopeful that uh, this can happen at a greater extent um, across the country. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like organization has to be very important and communication, I'm sure, is especially important between all the universities. And how do you um, how do you kind of manage the contributions of each group or researcher? Well, I think everyone is kind of natural selection a little bit, right? So everyone may have, if someone's really good at coding, they may take up that and say, I can do that pretty quickly. Other people might be uh, more interested in how you represent the data so it's meaningful. Others are very well aware that um, embedding sports science into athletic departments and athletic administration can be difficult because uh, people are concerned about uh, participation time of student athletes and research mm -hmm. and want to be sure that that's done in a very respectful way that um, really being embedded into practice without taking much time it literally takes less than a minute to strap on sensors and go for a run. So I think we've managed to find a way to collect the data and not get in the way of what's already happening out there. But as, as people have different experiences and different perspectives, um, everyone's just pitching in, and we have a very clear understanding of what it is we need to get done, and it's just coming together really nicely. People are stepping up. We have Google Docs sharing going on where we're um, – code is being uploaded, people are testing it locally, um, and it's just a natural progression. I think what's been key is the uh, phone call conversations each week. Um, there's a lot of openness and sharing of code, uh, sharing of approaches, a lot of listening going on, and, and learning from each other, and I think that just speaks to the strength of, the, of what we've been able to put together even in this first year. So... Um, been really it's just evolved there hasn't been um too many challenges as far as figuring that stuff out so yeah i think everyone's just very excited to be part of it yeah definitely and so this collaboration is within the same discipline all biomechanics research groups through across different universities um how would a collaboration across disciplines differ from this and have you been in a collaboration that's interdisciplinary yeah, so one of the areas that uh, we hope to tackle with this grant, uh, but we were it was suggested that we just stick with the biomechanics section, is to include the physiology aspects of this. So if you wanted to figure out bone markers and things for what, what's happening in terms of bone response, in terms of remodeling and such, you can begin to bring in the physiology aspects of this, right? And so um, looking at the nutritional uh, inputs, 
uh, what kind of sleep is happening, what kind of stress is happening. So you're getting a much better physiological perspective of the context in which the loading is occurring. Um, so if you're in a, a supportive environment, you may get positive adaptation. If you're in a negative environment, maybe not so much. So, right. you know, mechanical loading is just one piece of the puzzle. And our hope is, is that as we get the biomechanical methods in place, and then other schools might be working on pactual projects that are looking at sleep and nutrition and stressors and life that these things can be blended together a little bit downstream. And so what happens there, I think there's even more learning going on in that um, I'm not a physiologist, but if I talk to my colleague who has a expertise in metabolism and such, she's very well aware of what the actual uh markers might be to keep track of, right? I'm not going to know that. And right. What's really cool about that is that we're, we're learning from each other, and then you, I think you end up with much better experimental design to really nail down what's going on, and you know, you're keeping track of what is really important, and you've controlled for the context in multiple systems that are actually relevant to the, the scenario that you're trying to, to better understand, and I think that's been really helpful on some of the other projects that we've done locally. Uh, oftentimes we'll look at repetitive loading in volleyball players who do a lot of jumping and landing. And my colleague, uh, Lorraine Turcott, who's a physiologist, has helped us a lot on really talking about the importance of refueling and, you know, having female athletes eat carbohydrates so they have energy uh, ready to, to burn for the next day in practice when to eat, what to eat, these kind of decisions that college athletes have to make all the time can really help set up what the next day's practice is going to be like. And these are things I'm not an expert in, but by bringing her into the team, we can help educate the coaches, we can provide um, support for the athletic uh, medicine staff, the nutritionists on top staff, but then also we can collect meaningful data to get a sense of what's actually happening um, in a bigger context than just biomechanics. Right. And so have you seen this culture of collaboration change since you started in academia, and where do you see it going in the future? It, I think it has changed a lot. Uh, I think, and I don't know why. Um, I can't think of any one thing. Uh, I think we do, I think, what happens as individuals, at least, you know, you start out and you develop expertise in your area, right? And as a junior faculty member, you really need to establish yourself. A lot of stuff I started with was landings and looking at uh, the impact loads, but, you know, from a point of view of injury prevention, but also from a point of improvement in performance. And once you establish your own area and have expertise in an area, you really can be at that table where you have that expertise and it can be blended with people with other expertise. And so I don't know if it's my own personal journey that has seen the real value of this collaborative approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's evolved for me. Now, whether that was happening before, um, I didn't see a whole lot of, of that. And it could be with computer technology and being able to Skype and do teleconferences and these kind of things, some of these barriers have dropped to make it easier for the collaboration. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I think computers in general, I mean, some of the things, uh, the computers I was working on at Penn State took up a whole room and you probably <laughs> have more computing power on your phone right now. 
So I think things have gotten a little easier on that management side of things. Yeah. What's, what's been the biggest challenge that you found with collaboration, and how have you um, tried to get around that? It has. Um, I've been very fortunate, and I think for me the key to collaboration was aligning with people who had the same research question, mm-hmm. not necessarily the same discipline per se. So, for example, I was very interested in the control dynamics of landing. And I was so fortunate to, through being on dissertation committees at school, uh, to work with uh, Henrik Flaschner over in aerospace and mechanical engineering. And he had worked on landings of uh, spacecraft on the planet Mars so they could land without falling apart. And oh, wow. so he was working with uh, yeah, JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, to figure out how do you get the spaceship to land without falling apart. And here I am looking at athletes trying to land without falling apart, and we had the same research question. Yeah. So what was fun for me is he was a former athlete, and so he had great appreciation for what athletes have to do. And we ended up with this wonderful collaboration where we were able to look at, really use the um, dynamic modeling to ask those questions that we couldn't ask an athlete to do. We couldn't ask them to land at a higher height than they expected and see what happened. The lows are too high. So by modeling the control, neuromuscular control prior to contact, during impact and post-impact, we can begin through dynamic modeling to say, well, what if? You know, so if I have this actual control logic that's based on experimental work and you've got something unexpected dynamically, what would then happen? And so some of the challenges have been to get the experimental data, all those measurements that we make have error in them. And we need to recognize that, you know, some of the forces actually do have to equal MA and <laughs> for the equations to work, right? And so there's error on the experimental side and how we model the human as well as there might be assumptions in the modeling side that we can't model all, everything. And so you, you've learned a lot about both sides of that equation. And by doing it together and having the experimental work done to support the dynamic model, we can now ask questions that we couldn't do experimentally. And that gives us a better understanding of what's going on, what actually matters, and then that allows us to actually do better experiments. You know, we're asking better questions when we go back. And so this this has been a very wonderful collaboration, but the key, I think, is there's respect on both sides for what each brings to the table. There's a common interest in the question, so everything lines up. And, um, you know, you're bringing two different approaches, um, so you're learning from each other, and when they're making decisions about how to represent the human body, how many links do you need, we have some experimental data allows them to test to see, you know, seven links might be enough for this kind of question. Right. And this then allows them to proceed and go forward. And so it's been great, but I think the key part is having the same research question. I've tried to do other things with other people, if the research questions aren't quite the same, you're really trying to, you're trying to work together, but you're really going two different directions. Yeah. So it doesn't align as well, and um, so you just have to be be aware of that. It's not like you wouldn't work well together as people, it's just maybe the efforts wouldn't be along the same lines, and so the experiment that you choose to do or the model simulation work that you, you may not be quite... Um, Align so that you can actually get where you want to go together. 
So, um, so that's where I've found it to work the best. Great. And how would you suggest approaching someone about a collaboration? Like if I saw someone at a conference presenting a study that I thought it would be really great to collaborate with them, um, how would you kind of approach that situation? Yeah, so I think it's um, you're probably aware of people doing like research or you're seeing them do their research, but it's nice to go to conferences um, outside your field. So, or right. it's really nice, like sometimes at our IESB and ISB meetings, we'll have people from other um, uh, professional societies, we have keynote speakers and things, and all of a sudden you now see, oh wow, some of their techniques that they're doing over there actually is pretty relevant. Um, and it, and oftentimes, again, it's through the research question. So you, you wouldn't be just reading control dynamics within biomechanics, but if mm-hmm. you did look at multi-control literature and, you know, neuromuscular control or some of the neuroscience uh, labs, all of a sudden you might be finding, again, we're asking the same question, but we're doing it a little bit different way. It seems like we might be able to help each other kind of thing. And so, again, it'd be through the research question, reading the literature, talking to people. Um, and, and remember, people are really excited about their research, right? So, you know, you can always yeah. send them an email, even if you don't have an opportunity. So, like, I noticed this paper, and I'm really interested in this question, and um, some of the things that you're finding is consistent with uh, what we're doing. And I was wondering if you had a few minutes to talk about it, even simple things like that, right? And so people usually want to talk to other people who are interested in the same problem, and it's it's just a very natural progression. And right. I know people are, are too busy these days, but <laughs> I would guess you have a high probability of success if your research questions are aligned. You could probably get to at least to the next step. Yeah, and, um, yeah. That's so, really so important. don't be afraid. Be courageous. Make that connection. <laughs> I like that advice. <laughs> That's great. And with all this amazing research that you've been doing, um, one question that we like to ask near the end of the interview is if there's a past research fail that you have experienced and if you would share that with us. So uh, that's a good question. I, I think we learn something every time we do something. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> For better or worse, <laughs> we're paying attention, we're learning something. I, I think early on um, we had done some jumping and landing experiments uh, with our women's volley- our women's basketball team. And um, I think we underestimated what they wanted to know. They really wanted to know why we were doing this. And I don't think uh, we were prepared this is very early in my career on, oh, yeah, they may actually really want to understand this. And it was really important because they asked the questions after they participated as compared to before. And what we learned from that, that failure to explain why we're doing what we're doing and why we're interested in them participating and what we hope to learn is they weren't very motivated to do the task. Right. Because of it wasn't clear to them what you were really asking them to do. And we were doing some kind of rebounding activity. And if it wasn't realistic enough, it was like we are collecting all this data and doing all this work, but it wasn't very meaningful because the athletes weren't invested. It wasn't clear what their mechanical objective of the task was. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really a competitive environment. So it was kind of like we could all go through the motions 
to make a lot of work for ourselves, but we're not going to really advance our knowledge. So I think that really made us stop and think about, okay, how do we make this real? How do we make it relevant? How do we make it engaging for the athlete so it's as real as possible so that we're actually studying what their nervous system is trying to do when they're really taking on a realistic challenge? And I think that has forced us into the field, into wearable technology. Um, when our new gymnasium was built here at USC, I begged the um, athletic department if we could please put in a place where we could put in force plates. Yeah. And it was a four-year project. I mean, I learned a lot about construction. <laughs> <laughs> I learned about things when you have wooden floors, they might take a year to settle depending on the air conditioning and moisture content in the air. Oh, wow. All sorts of things, things you would never really know. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm so thankful that we had somebody who, who embraced what we were trying to do and was willing to work with us. So we've been able to do live ball experiments in the gym. And that makes it extremely realistic when you have a stutter, a hitter, a blocker um, with a net, and you can actually see it for real, right? Because we do our very best, and I'm sure everyone tries to make it realistic in the lab, but as I I say with our gymnastics work, there's no way I can recreate the Olympics in my lab. I just can't do it. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Not that much is on the line here. Yeah. You know, and that and that's why we go to competition and try to capture the performance in competition. But if we can't do that, it's nice to have the ability to do really good science and have good measure in the field, whether it's the Olympic Training Center or a gym on campus, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because with a live ball, I mean, it's just different from the nervous system. It has to read, it has to react, it has to prepare, it has to pay attention to other people moving, and it just becomes a much more realistic challenge. And I I think those early failures helped us really take time and get the experimental environment we need to, to make it real and make it relevant for the coaches and athletes, and that's, that was the key piece. So, Yeah, well, thank you. And this was a really insightful talk about the power of collaboration and you highlighted having, making sure that you have the same research question and communication is really important and having researchers just being open to what might seem like an intimidating challenge but can actually end up in a really meaningful collaboration. So thank you for your insight with that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Now my favorite part of the episode, where we talk about all of the wonderful mess-ups and fails that happen. We're going to start with a grad student that, for his research, he measures knee adduction moment, which is a surrogate measure for the forces in the knee. And he wanted to find the peak of the which is the highest magnitude of this force and so he wanted the average of all these peaks of knee adduction moment throughout many different um, gait cycles but he had been averaging peak adduction moment plots and then finding the peak of the new plot rather than finding the peaks of each individual plot and then averaging those and so these two different methods give very different results. And so his advice is that the peak of the average is not the same as the average of the peaks. Mm. Yes. 
actually, my friend just did the same, a very similar thing, because she was found out that the average of the differences between two individual plots is mm-hmm. different than the difference of the averages of all those plots. So oh, very yeah, exactly. Idea. Really similar. Um, good thing to note. And we have another fail from someone doing some wet bench um, research, and he says that he once ruined $2,000 worth of DNA by putting it in acid instead of water. Oh, no. So it ruined all of the DNA by putting all it in All of the it. DNA. All that expensive DNA. Oh, <laughs> yikes. So if you're ever looking for more inspiration about other people's research fails, we've actually found a couple different sources online, and we're just reading through some. And one that we thought was pretty funny was about someone doing mouse breeding, and they had a really important breeding experiment to do. And after a couple weeks of no pregnancy, they realized that they had actually put two females in a cage together. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't breeding doesn't work that way apparently. Um, things to note, at least not for mice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if you have a research fail, um, as always, if you if you want to share it, you can send us an email at. Um, isb.studentrepresentative at gmail.com. And we're always looking to hear about what you want to listen to and learn about. It'd also be awesome if you want to follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Facebook and Twitter to kind of get some more biomechanics in your life. And if you came to us through SoundCloud, you'll be happy to know that we are now available on iTunes. Yes, Boom is on iTunes. Uh, Next month's episode is going to be featuring Dr. Mary Rogers from the University of Maryland, and she's going to be talking about mentorship. So we're looking forward to that episode. Biomechanics Biomechanics off our our minds. minds.